Coming to you from high in the hills of Oakland, California, this is Radio Free Cannabis, voice of the global cannabis freedom movement. I'm your host, Steve D'Angelo. Yes, Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Cannabis. For thousands of years, and in every part of the world, various different kinds of elites, financial elites, racial elites, religious elites, ethnic elites, have feared cannabis. They have banned it, and they've oppressed people who have used cannabis. It's been going on for a long, long time. You can go back to 1492 and the Catholic reconquest in Spain, where you find cannabis being banned and cannabis users being tortured at the same time that Jews are being exiled from the country and books are being burned. Or you can go to Egypt and Arabia between, well, like around a thousand years ago for a period of a few hundred years, there was a conflict between the ruling house and the people. The people loved cannabis and the ruling house didn't. They actually would strap people into public squares and chairs and pull their teeth out without anesthetic in an effort to dissuade people from using cannabis. You can go even to India where cannabis plays an important role in religion. You can find that the Brahmin priestly caste got into conflict and tried to keep the tantric mystics from using cannabis. So this is a pattern that's, that's been with us for a long time in the modern world. The prohibition of cannabis was driven by a guy named Harry Anslinger. Anslinger was the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in the United States. And after he retired from that position, went to the United Nations, where he was a commissioner there. And there, Anslinger spread his particularly poisonous, racially based form of prohibition around the world, forcing countries everywhere that had not made cannabis illegal to make it illegal and forcing countries that had already made cannabis illegal to increase their penalties and increase enforcement of of those laws. The result has been a reign of terror. We don't really know how many cannabis people there are in, in the whole world. The WHO and UN estimate that there's 150 to 200 million of us, but they think that two or 3% of the people in the world consume cannabis, and we know it's a lot more than that. So there are hundreds of millions of us around the world And right now, there's just a handful of countries that have made cannabis legal, fully legal everywhere for all of their citizens. Everywhere else, it's illegal. And some places, it's it's just a little bit illegal. Some places, it's a lot illegal. There are eight countries around the world that have a death penalty for cannabis, including the United States. In fact, I'm eligible for that death sentence because I've sold way more than 60,000 cannabis plants, which is the qualifying threshold. But there are other people who have suffered this sentence. A Nigerian citizen in 2016 was hung by the neck until dead in Singapore for possession of 2.8 kilos of cannabis. It's it's a pattern that we see in, in many other places in the United Arab Emirates. Possession of any amount of cannabis gets you a minimum four year prison sentence. And possession can be determined with a urine test or a blood test showing that you have cannabis in your bloodstream. And sometimes they give those tests to people passing through the airports. In Nigeria, you can receive a 15 to 25 year sentence for any amount of cannabis. And in the United States, there's some really, really crazy sentences. So in the state of Alabama and in three or four other US states, you can get life without parole in prison for possession possession of just a little bit more than an ounce of cannabis. And in fact, in Alabama today, there is a prisoner. Let me find his name because it's important that we remember our names. Lee Carroll Brooker. Lee Carroll Brooker was imprisoned in 2011 at the age, I think he was in his late 70s when he was imprisoned. He was a decorated combat veteran who had gotten into a little bit of trouble in his youth was retired, was growing cannabis plants in the backyard of his son's house. They raided him. They found 2.6 pounds of cannabis, no, 2.8 pounds of cannabis, 
And, uh, and for that, they sentenced Mr. Brooker to life without parole. Uh, he's still there as far as we can determine. So um, there are at least, as far as we know, 40,000 cannabis prisoners in the United States alone. We don't know how many are uh, imprisoned around the world. It's very difficult information to get a hold of. So if you out there in your countries have information on this, if you could let us know the magnitude of the problem, please do. Now we're going to move on to our guests who have personal experience being in the maw of this monster being targeted by this reign of terror. Evelyn LaChapelle and Stephanie Shepard are both recently released prisoners from the federal uh, system in the United States. And uh, we're going to ask them to tell, tell their stories and, um, and thank them in advance for, for doing that because this is, uh, is not an easy thing to do. And they have shown a remarkable amount of grit and courage throughout their journeys. And, and I thank them for doing that again here today. Evelyn, uh, let's start with you. If you could just you know, tell us a little bit about who you are and what the circumstances of your arrest were. Um, my name is Evelyn. I received in 2013 an uh, 87-month sentence. That's seven years and three months, plus four years of federal probation um, post-serving my time um, for depositing marijuana profits into my bank account. Um, that act alone warranted such a sentence for me, first-time offender, nonviolent uh, mother of a four-year-old at the time, uh, working at a prominent hotel, building my career in the hospitality industry as a sales and catering coordinator, and none of that was able to save me um, from being sentenced and losing those years of my life. Thanks, Evelyn. Um, and Stephanie, um, if you could just uh, answer that same question for me, you know, a little bit about who you are and what happened. Okay, I'm Stephanie Shepard. Um, in 2010, I was arrested, um, charged with a conspiracy to distribute a thousand or more kilos of marijuana in New York City. Um, I was sentenced a year later. I was on pretrial for one year. A year later, I received a sentence of 120 months, 10 years. Um, and a week later, I was um, found guilty and sentenced to that and did nine years. That's so heavy. Uh, I'm so sorry that both of you uh, had that happen to you. Could you talk a little bit about you know, what your lives were like? You talked a little bit, Evelyn, but maybe Stephanie, you could as well. Let's start with you. Just tell us a little bit about you know, what your life was like before the arrest and how did it feel when, when you got charged? Um, I was enjoying my life in New York City. Um, I was selling real estate um, for a very prominent company there. When I was asked to step forward and help out an ex-boyfriend who had been arrested for um, cannabis, I thought about it and I knew it was the right thing to do. He was very sick and he was not doing well. So when I stepped forward to help him, I did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. Um, not knowing the system as it is, when I did step forward and the judge found me credible and responsible and recommended he be released into my custody, as I was getting dressed to go and um, pick him up, I got arrested. And I just felt very um, thrown away by the system at that point. I understand they wanted him to stay in, but just to get him healthy to go to prison, was the goal I was, I was aiming for. So when they decided to give me that mandatory minimum of 10 years, I just felt very thrown away by the system at that point. Was it a surprise? I was very surprised. I, I have always felt that to go to prison, you have to really do something. 
you have to kill someone, you have, you have to really do something. Marijuana was never something that I thought I would go to prison for. And then add on 10 years to that for my first offense. Um, I was very surprised. The morning of my trial, as a matter of fact, my sister had came down and testified in my trial. And on the last morning we were going and she asked me, do I want to stop and get something to eat before we go to the courthouse? And I said, no, we can do it after. We'll eat after. That's how confident I was that there's no possible way that the things that they're saying I did, they're going to get up there and prove. And I was very surprised. I did not prepare. I did not pack up my home. I did nothing. I, I prepared to come home after that, after that court date. Evelyn, how was it for you? I had a very similar experience in not really preparing, right? I, um, I was tried on the other side of the country. I was tried in North Carolina. And so for me, um, court, my trial started on a Tuesday. So I took my daughter to daycare. Monday, kissed her and told her I'd see her in a couple of days. Um, told my job that I needed a few days off. I didn't even pack up my desk and went to court thinking, having the same thoughts as Stephanie, that there's no way that a prosecutor would be able to convince a jury of my peers that ended up not really being my peers, um, that I was the monster um, or the drug lord that they made me out to be. Also very similarly, um, just the relationship that I've had with cannabis in California, just never ever in a million years imagined that a cannabis even warranted these sentences and never imagined that they would uh, be held against me. Um, college graduate, you know, resume, like everything in my favor, I believed going into court and coming out not guilty. So when they said guilty, I, I dropped to my knees in the courtroom. Um, and my attorney looks at me and he goes, get up because we can maybe get you out on bail until sentencing, which also didn't happen. Um, so almost like a twilight zone, right? Of it happened, but not having the time to process that it happened. And the first thoughts in my head that rang at least for the first 48 hours was, um, I'm not going home to my daughter. My daughter doesn't have a mother. Um, and, and those thoughts played in my mind, at, you know, heavily. Um, I spent my first night in, in, in the county jail on suicide watch because of it. Um, just can't wrap my mind around that my daughter doesn't have a mother, that I'm not coming home, and I don't know when I'm coming home. Um, that was that was my first you know few nights. That was yeah, that was tough. So we know that the enforcement of cannabis laws really everywhere in the world is, is disproportionate. It's always uh, visited on, on the targets of, of whomever it is that the particular elite in charge doesn't like. Um, in the United States, that manifests as a huge racial disparity in the enforcement of cannabis laws. As, as you moved through the system, I'll ask you both this question, starting with Evelyn and then Stephanie. How did that disparity manifest in, in front of your eyes? What did you see that, that, that made that clear? And how did that make you feel? I seen it prior to being taken into custody. I had my prosecutor walk into the room um, while I'm still in pretrial and tell me that the reason that he's trying this case in North Carolina is because he has a 100% conviction rate. Right. And I'm from California. I never left California. My crime was committed in California. And I'm, I can't be sure, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have received 87 months from a judge in California. Um, and so he tells me I'm trying, 
I try my cases in North Carolina because the people here agree and with the land, the law of the land. And so I knew right then that this was more than a cannabis issue. Now I'm, I'm facing like real social race issues in this courtroom. And then when I get a jury of my peers and the entire jury is made up of middle-aged white people, I'm like, this, this is not you know, what I expected, but still presenting myself. And then I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. So when we're discussing funds and money and the amount of money that's been spent and profited from cannabis, speaking to my peers in Los Angeles versus, you know, sharing that same, those same numbers with North Carolina residents, none of that, uh, none of that made sense to them. And so it makes sense that I was convicted and it makes sense that the prosecution has a hundred percent conviction rate in North Carolina. And it absolutely makes sense that he would try his cases there because we know that prosecutors are promoted for their convictions. And so at that point, I knew that I was really just another number for him to be promoted. I was just another notch on the ladder of his career. And in the process of that, um, my life would change dramatically in in being a step on his ladder. Um, And that hurts, right? That is when you sort of realize or it starts to sink in that you're just a number of this major operation, right? Federal prison, the court system, like you are now a part and of a system that needs to continue to work. And there's no getting out of that once you realize that this was not really about your crime, your involvement, or cannabis, but um, a bigger picture in someone else's career. And uh, that hurts when you realize that your life is um, dispensable, you know, that your life, that my daughter's life, my mother, my parent, like every, everyone involved on my side, our lives um, did not matter. They were null and void in the bigger picture of how our federal justice system operates. So for those of our viewers who aren't familiar with the political geography of the United States, it's important to understand that the state of California never was a slave state, Uh, but the state of North Carolina was one of the states of the Confederacy that fought in the Civil War in order to maintain chattel slavery over black people. Uh, And the state has a long tradition of deep Ku Klux Klan involvement with law enforcement and has a very deep tradition of excluding black people from voting, excluding black people from juries and uh, and imposing grossly, grossly disproportionate sentences on black defendants. And so that is the reason that the federal prosecutor in Evelyn's case decided to take that case to North Carolina instead of leaving it in California where racial attitudes are certainly far from perfect but not as archaic and Neanderthal as they unfortunately continue to be uh, in North Carolina. Uh, Stephanie, um, how did the disparities manifest for you? What did you see? Well, for me, what Evelyn said really resonated with me because it was not a jury of my peers. I had one African-American on my jury. I had CEOs. I had um, people from Westchester. So how you're saying California and North Carolina is so different, um, my difference was right in New York. Because had I been tried in Brooklyn, where I live, where everybody involved lived, where my ex-boyfriend lived, where the whole you know, situation happened, it would have been a different situation, I feel, as well. Because I have been on a jury in Brooklyn So I know what it looks like. It does represent Brooklyn. Um, So having the trial in Manhattan, where the prosecutors there, they are getting that promotion, no matter what. Um, So to see a jury of my peers containing only one African-American, I was like, 
this is definitely going to be difficult. Um, so in seeing that, I knew it was going to be an uphill battle for me. It is uh, so sad and so enraging to me that, that both of you, uh, as soon as you saw the race of your juries, um, knew, knew what was up. Uh, it's just a tragic example of the systemic and institutionalized racism that continues in, in the United States. Um, the two of you met while you were in prison. Could you tell me a bit about that? Stephanie? Evelyn? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, how do we answer this? So we, we met in Victorville. Um, we met in Victorville and the relationship grown. We were both transferred to Arizona. I think that the smiles that Stephanie and I share was because we did not start off as friends. Um, prison sort of allows for for things for people to not be friends and um once we got past that uh i consider stephanie really one of my greatest friends that came out of that situation and i've said before in in prison it's sort of meant it's not sort of, it is meant to isolate you. Um, it is meant to remove you from your outside world and, and put you in a place where the only thoughts that are breeding, um, you know, within yourself is that you're a criminal and all of these. I don't think that they imagine that when you put women in a room, just as nurturers, just as comforters, just, just, the friendships and the bonds that would be created there. And I came out really with a handful of women in my life that I would not have survived that place without them. And for sure, Stephanie is at the top of the list um, for that. Um, for me, our relationship grew when we sat in the TV room, not supposed to be in there, I'm sure, uh, watched the news together and watched a news story about how the cannabis industry was booming on the outside. Here we are, we're sitting inside, it's dark, just she and I are in the TV room and there's this beautiful blonde haired, blue eyed lady on the news saying how business is booming. Mm -hmm. And we just looked at each other and we couldn't believe it. She's doing seven years, I'm doing 10 years. And here's this lady with her cute packaging and her really, you know, chipper attitude about business is booming and it's not booming for us. <laughs> so um, I think that moment kind of grew into, not only do I consider her a friend, I consider her a sister because in prison, you don't click with everyone. So something draws you to someone and you get, you get attached that way. Not a lot of people can understand what I went through, but I know she can. Mm -hmm. And that's why she will always be very special to me. I'm so glad that you, that you both had each other and, and still have each other. Let's stay in, in prison now for a little while. And if, you know, maybe you could uh, each share with me, let's start with you, Evelyn. And then we can come to you, uh, Stephanie. Was there a moment when you were incarcerated that was really emotionally brought it all home to you? Uh, there's many moments um, that just just brought it home. You know, just waking up some days and realizing that I couldn't take my kid, my daughter to school, or I couldn't just all of those what I couldn't do. Um, In the beginning, what brought it home the the most was um, my daughter is in preschool. It's our first Christmas, right? And all I want to do is call her um, to discuss Santa Claus coming and delivering her presents. And the rule in, at that time, at that location, I was in Mecklenburg County Jail, North Carolina. And the rule is you have 20 minutes to eat your lunch and 20 minutes to be back in your cell. And I think I took 20 minutes and 30 seconds. Like 
something really crazy. And so the officer on duty at that time just left a note for the next officer that I wouldn't be allowed out of my cell for the remainder of the day because I was late. Um, but she, no one lets me know until it's actually time to come out. And I go to open my door and it's locked. Um, so just even that lack of communication was like, you are an animal and I decide when the doors open, when they don't open, and I don't have the decency to communicate that with you. Um, and it was Christmas Eve. And I just want to discuss Santa Claus. And so I lose it emotionally. And I'm, you know, I'm throwing things and I'm hysterical and I'm crying and everyone can hear me in my cell. No one can help. So I don't even know how that is emotionally changing or shifting for other women, friends, inmates who have to hear me in my cell hysterically crying, um, especially uh, me. I don't have tears often. And um, I just, and, and that moment, it's, it's set in that you are no longer the controller of your life. You no longer are able to make decisions for yourself or your daughter. And I had to go into some deep prayer in order to get to sleep that night. And that sort of shifted. I got incarcerated in October and now we're in December, so two months. And that, that really, I think, was the first shift in how I emotionally dealt with prison and um, the cutoff and the disengagement with the outside world that is required to survive prison. I would say that that was the, the first night um, that I, I ex not accepted where I was, but learned how to remove myself emotionally from the situation. Otherwise, every night would have been his hysterical tears, right? Yeah, I mean, part of the point of prison is is mental and emotional torture. Um, and, uh, and they've learned how to be very, very good at it. One of the things that always impressed me uh, in a negative way and the few times that I've been locked up was just the, what you're talking about, Evelyn, the way that you're treated like an absolute animal, the, uh, the, the purposeful uh, lack of, of respect. They're going out of the way to humiliate you. Mm -hmm. Why couldn't you have been told about that a bit mm -hmm. earlier in the day so that you could have been prepared yourself or mm -hmm. maybe had a conversation with it uh, about somebody? Why, when I was locked up, did they put me in a holding cell in the middle of the winter and then turn the heat off and I was sitting there freezing for 48 hours. Uh, mm -hmm. Things that are, are not necessary, that are inhumane, that happen on a daily basis. Stephanie, what, what was your moment or moments where it came home to you in prison? There was a lot of moments, like Evelyn said, but it really took me five years to understand that this is real. Like, no one's coming for me. No one can help me. Um, one of the things that stands out to me, and I've never told anyone this, um, I was in the special housing unit. I was in the SHU. I'd gotten into an argument with someone, and she said she felt threatened for her life. So I was in the SHU, and... I found out I was going to be transferred. I had gotten within 45 minutes of my family. I had visits every weekend. My father was in his mid-90s at this time. He was coming to see me every weekend. I was in the shoe, and I found out that I was going to be transferred to Minnesota, Waseca, Minnesota, all the way across the country. And I was so angry. I, I had a Bible in my room. And I just ripped it to shreds. I was so angry. I was so hurt. I just felt like nothing could go right. It was just one thing after another. And I just couldn't understand it. And I just felt like if, you know, there's really somebody looking over me, why is this happening? And I just ripped that Bible to shreds. And the chaplain came around doing her visits. And she looked in my room. 
and she saw all the paper and she didn't know what it was. And when I told her what it was, she just told me, okay, it's, it's just a book. It's just a book, you know? God got angry at people. It's okay. And I just felt so guilty from doing that. And that was when I realized that I, like Evelyn said, could not control my life. As my father got older and he got very sick, I, I just wanted to get there, to be there with him. When he passed away and they told me I would not be allowed to go on a furlough because of the small things that had happened in the, you know, seven years that I've been incarcerated, I was angry. I was so angry. And after fighting it and fighting it and fighting it and going back and forth with the warden, she finally told me the morning that my dad passed away that they were going to allow me to furlough to his funeral. So I didn't get to go see him when he was living. It's only an hour and 15 minute flight that my family was happy to pay for. If I could just see him and say goodbye to him while he was living. And for her to tell me, no, you can't go because you were late to work and you got a shot. You got a, a incident report. I was beyond myself. So when they did tell me I could go to his funeral, it was a $600 flight from Southern California to Northern California because it was last minute. I only went to be there for my family. I didn't go for myself because my father was gone. I couldn't see him while he was living. So when I went to the funeral, I went simply to support my family. Evelyn, you lost a parent while you were incarcerated too, didn't you? I did. Um, Jesus, Steph. I, when I left to go to prison, I left my daughter in the care of my mother and my stepmother, who are best friends, right? In a perfect world when mothers and stepmothers could be best friends. And so they shared and they went back and forth. And um, during my incarceration, she was re-diagnosed with breast cancer. And so this is our, I think, our third time um, of coming out of remission and back into breast cancer. And we all, we would get on the phone and I tell her, okay, when you, when you're healed and I'm out of prison, we're going to go on vacation. And I don't care if we're just sitting on the curb with the pina colada, we both deserved it. And when I was finally transferred to California, I had already been in, in custody for 24 months, but um, I was in the county jail. So once I'm sentenced, they transfer me to a federal prison and I'm there, I get there July, mid-July. And what I don't know is that you only have 300 minutes. And so I had exhausted these minutes calling home within my first week of being there. And in one of those last phone calls, they tell me that she's sick and she's being hospitalized, but I don't have any minutes. Um, and so I risk going, uh, getting an incident report and using someone else's minutes to have my last phone conversation with her and I'll never forget it. It'll play in my head a thousand times. And I just kept repeating cause she, I love you so much. I love you so much. I love you so much. And that was my last conversation with her. Um, knowing that she heard me say, I love you so much. And then when it came time for me to request to attend the funeral, it was, um, you have to have been in federal custody for a period of time, I think longer than 10 months. And although I had been in custody for 24 months, I had not been on federal property for longer than the 10 months. And even when I argued myself past that, um, 
because I had been in custody, stepmothers are not considered immediate family. And that hurt like hell because my stepmother had been my mother since I was two. This is hers. She wore it every day. Um, and had been my daughter's grandmother. And there is no one in this world that I was closer to. Um, I was just telling my stepsister yesterday that what hurts the most about coming home is that she wasn't here to pick up all of my pieces. She was the parent who, it didn't matter what time you called, she came to pick you up. If what you needed, you know, she would have had my wardrobe picked out she would have had my room. Like there is nothing on this earth that I've ever needed that she was not willing to jump through hoops to get done. And for them to tell me that she was not my immediate family was a slap in the face for me and for her. And that night, and I'm new in Victorville, I'm new at this location, so I haven't forged many relationships. And so that night when we're supposed to be in our bunks, I climb out of bed and I go sit in a corner of this huge unit. It's like a warehouse. And I just ball up and I spend my night there until another lady comes to offer some comfort. Um, it's... I would do prison a thousand times. I would spend my life there if I was able to see her again. I just, I would just for that moment. So. I, uh, I'm so angry and so sad. Um, I'm not supposed to get emotional on this show and it's really testing me uh, right now. Um, this is just monstrous a monstrous thing that that both of you have endured it's 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 torture and you know i know both of you well enough to know that like most cannabis people you're kind and gentle people who have tried to do your best to help people around you and uh that these laws and these really monsters i think about the the prosecutor who knowing about both of your backgrounds knowing the kind of people you were decided that somebody's interest, whose interest would be served by this kind of torture, by removing you from society for seven to 10 years. Um, let's talk a little bit about re-entry. Um, and um, Stephanie, what, what were you expecting from re-entry and what did it end up being like? When I was in prison, I felt like I would be one of those people, I was gonna hit the ground running. I figured that would not be the case when I was so nervous just being at the airport, just being out of prison in general is a, a shock. You um, feel so strange. Even though once you get out, you get to put on your own clothes, inside you feel you still feel like you are a prisoner so when i got out i thought was not going to be me hit the ground running i'm the person i was in 2010. i'm a whole new person with a whole load of extra baggage so when i got to the day reporting center um, while i was on home confinement they told me you have two weeks to get a job, two weeks. I'm still not even used to being able to walk outside and sit on my front porch. And here I am going to jump into a job. My last job was a real estate agent. I can no longer do that because I have a felony. In New York, immediately um, they took away my license. And that was halfway during pretrial. So the rest of the time I was on pretrial, I didn't have a job. Um, so just getting back into where am I gonna go? What am I gonna do? I'm overqualified for these types of jobs. And now I have a felony to move on to the types of jobs I had before. Um, 
I got a job the very last day before I would violate um, and be in trouble, possibly even be sent back to prison, depending on how they wanted to deal with it. So I was fortunate enough to get a job. The job I have cannot support me. Monetarily, it does not support me. But, and I think I've heard you talk about this before, Steve, is the stoner shame. And that just includes the charge in itself. So I had this shame about my, my, my charge. And I felt like I wasn't worthy of anything other than the job that I got. I'm getting out of that now, thanks to the last prisoner project. I know there is a future for me beyond where I am now, but it was difficult, very difficult having to explain in a job interview with a ankle monitor on and they make them as big as possible. It could be a Fitbit. It, they can make them small as a watch, but they make them big as a garage door opener. So everybody knows you did something. So I went to a job interview with an ankle monitor on and a story about prison. And I got the job. So with that being said, even though I'm not where I want to be, I know I'll get to where I'm going eventually. But right now it's difficult. I, I know that too, Stephanie. And you've shown remarkable grit and resilience all through this journey. And, uh, and I'm sure that, that it's going to end up and continue to going in a good direction. So we're gonna keep on doing everything we can to make sure that that happens. Evelyn, what was the reentry experience like for you? Of course, very similar. Um, just pointing out though, that coming out of prison, we've spent for Stephanie nine years, for myself five, um, completely, um, dependent on our family support, right? Um, to commissary for our hygiene, for our phone calls, all of this, this huge expense, um, which I would calculate at least $400 a month, um, $360 at the commissary and $75, I think on the phone, right? And that's so um, a, a little over 400 bucks a month that I've relied on my family. And so our goal coming home is immediately to be able to help them and then to be financially independent on our own. Um, but given two weeks to find a job, I was waitressing at two places um, with an ankle monitor on. Um, but when do you have time to be a mother, right? When do you have time to be a daughter? And so um, also grateful for quarantine because this is the first time since I've been home that I've been able to devote any of my time, right, to my family because I, I came out and I'm working three jobs. I'm waitressing at two. I'm interning at another just to meet the requirements of what the halfway house requires and to sort of gain this financial um, independence. And as soon as I removed the ankle monitor, I thought it was time to go find a real job real job. And I get hired at a very prominent hotel in San Francisco. And I'm working doing exactly what I was doing before I went to prison. And I come out on my break one day and I'm walking the cities of San Francisco as glorious as they are. And I'm thinking to myself, prison is behind me. I never have to talk about it, think about it. I have re-entered society. Um, and we're going for it from here. And then a coworker Googled my name and took it to human resources. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, in the middle of a work day, the director of human resources asked me to pack up all of my belongings and place me on administrative leave in which I was fired after the investigation. And it was at that moment that I realized that 
this felony was going to continue to convict me. Um, I would continuously be convicted at every no. I'm currently, you know, searching for my own apartment. And even that's an issue. Like, do you have a criminal history? Some of them are going to run criminal backgrounds. Does that disqualify me? Even with the income that I earn, you know, does that disqualify me for, for being a good tenant? Um, and so what I thought would be easy reentry, I have a college degree. I am a first time offender. I don't have these issues that I believe many of my other inmates um, inmate friends have. Um, and yet I still am getting no's. I'm still getting pushed back and held back. And as much as it hurts for me, I really hurt for the men and the other women who, you know, might have tattoos or like this image of a criminal. And I come out without that image. I surprise people all the time when I tell them I've been in prison. And yet I still have jobs after hiring me telling me to pack up my belongings and I still have to explain to new landlords that yes, I'm a criminal, but am I a criminal? You know, um, it's, it's re-entry has not been as easy as I thought it would be. Um, definitely made much better. I mean, if we're talking numbers here, 85% better with the help of Last Prisoner Project. Um, without them, I really am not sure what I would be doing. I would bet that I would still be waitressing. Well, um, it's, it's, it's been an honor for us to, to be able to help and just watch uh, how, again, the strength and the courage and the grit that you've shown in working through this process. Uh, uh, you know, along that theme, um, uh, maybe you could share uh, with us uh, some of the things that helped you survive. And, you know, I'm thinking right now uh, all around the world, I'm hoping that this show is going to be listened to by some prisoners. And unfortunately, I know that it will also be listened to by some people who are maybe getting ready to go into prison, uh, maybe who aren't getting ready, but are going to end up there one day anyhow. So, you know, any examples of, 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 of ways to get through this survival techniques? Yes. I recently listened into Jamila T. Davis and she did time in federal time. I'm not sure why, but I listened in on her IG live and it made so much sense to me that she says when she got to prison, you basically have like two options. You, you, conform to prison life, are you better yourself? Um, I did both. I, I think I spent the first two years just getting by and then maybe the last three years of, you know, picking up good books, just making sure that daily I am feeding into my growth um, emotionally. And that work of doing that work towards the end of my sentence, has allowed me, I think, to come home prepared to grow. And so I would say to anybody going into prison, what my dad told me, he goes, you'll survive prison, Evelyn. It's like high school. There'll be cliques, there'll be friends, you'll find your way. He was like, you survived three high schools, you can survive prison. And we laughed about it. And that's exactly what prison was. But also like high school, the part that he left out, you can be an A student, or you can be a D student. Either way, you'll pass. But I don't know if you pass with a D. But either way, you'll you'll transition out of it. Um, but who's the better person coming out of it? And just putting in that work of of growing yourself, coming out. Really, the only time in your life that you'll have time to work on you, in you. And like myself, I didn't think I had anything that needed to be worked on, um, but we all do. And I learned a lot. I read some good books and that is the only way to survive in that place. Stephanie, advice for those who may be going through it or who will go through it in the future? Um, the most important thing in the best case scenario is you have an outdate. You will at some point be home with your family. Sometime it may be sooner, it may be later, but you will be home. 
um, coming home and my father not being here was a difficult thing, but that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing now is I need, I need to turn this around for myself. Mm -hmm. I need to make that time I did in prison mean something. And in working with the last prisoner project and just attempting to, to live in my truth instead of trying to hide it is, is the best thing you can do. Um, I think Evelyn, she talked about um, just prison is not so bad, the being there. You get up, you, you talk to your friends, you uh, do some laundry, you go to yoga class, you go make pottery. It, it, that's not so bad. Some people have left prison and come back because prison is better than what they have outside. What's outside is what you make it. And even though um, the struggle is hard, it's also rewarding. Because mm -hmm. prison taught me a lot about humility. Um, just making that time mean something instead of just being that D student. Mm -hmm. I think I hear you both saying that, that loud and clear. And uh, Stephanie, you mentioned lingering, mentioned lingering stoner shame. Uh, this is something that I talk about. And I'll just briefly mention it here that um, we have all, whoever we are, if, if we've had cannabis in our lives and we had a connection to this plant, uh, we've grown up in a society that's been pumping a huge amount of stigma at us, a huge amount of propaganda at us, that's been using all of the powers available to government, to academia, to the media, uh, in order to systematically dismantle our self-image and plant seeds of self-doubt within us and self-hatred uh, within us. And uh, even those of us who really treasure this plant um, sometimes are forced to grapple with that lingering stoner shame. And I think that one of the things that I've learned in my, my work in social justice over the course of, of the last half century is that, that when, when a person has been oppressed, has been subjected to trauma and, and, and deprivation and control of information, that, that part of the damage of oppression usually involves that blows to self-esteem, to self-confidence, the instilling of a sense of shame uh, with, within ourselves. And, you know, my message to, to, to you, Stephanie, to you, Evelyn, to everybody around the world who's gone through this is that you have nothing to be shamed of. Uh, uh, none of you are criminals. None of you ever were criminals. You were victims. You were victims of unjust laws that have been passed by people who have very, very bad motivations. The real criminals aren't the people who broke these laws to carry this plant through the darkness of prohibition to people who needed it. The real criminals are the people who passed these laws and have enforced them and have enforced them in such a horribly brutal and vicious kind of way. I, I'd, I'd like to light a little candle of hope here um, because I think there's a lot to be hopeful about moving forward. Uh, a few years ago, these kinds of conversations weren't being had. Uh, cannabis prisoners weren't able to tell their stories. The conversation wasn't even going on. And, and today it is. And, and not only is Last Prisoner Project active in the space, there are many other organizations that have been formed that have been working for years before we got into the space in order to address the, the problem. Evelyn, signs of hope, is what makes you hopeful at this point? Um, my new position at Vertosa uh, leaves me extremely hopeful as their community engagement manager. Um, Bigger than that, though, is finding my space in the legal industry. Um, I've said it a thousand times. I, I was, the feds completely uh, covered me in shame when it came to the plant and scared me. And I had no intentions of entering the industry. And now I feel like it's home and that it is going to be a place where I, that I, grow and mature and it's 
it's my hope for the future. Like it is, it is everything to me right now. And knowing that the industry, um, socially is taking a stance to embrace us and to open doors, um, that allow us not only social equity dispensaries, but are now allowing us to have seats in, on boards and in the executive rooms. And I'm just extremely hopeful um, at where the industry is going at large. And something Stephanie just said of being able to survive the inside but what do you make of the outside and, and making that count for something? It would have counted for nothing if I continued to work at that hotel in San Francisco. I just told my mom yesterday I would still be working nine to five in a dungeon with a 30 minute lunch break, eating cafeteria food, thinking that I had accomplished something. Um, and so all of my hope right now is in the basket of this industry um, growing and finding my place in it and making every moment of my free life count. And more importantly, making it count for myself and not another corporation or another, like just making my life count um, in all aspects of it as a mother, as a daughter, as a, an employee. Um, so as a brand ambassador, you know, I'm here for all of it. And that's where I find my hope. Yeah, we have um, really been thrilled to see the way that you've been able to come out of prison, get introduced to the legal cannabis industry and be welcomed and find employment. And now pursuing some other opportunities, right? Um, we'll talk about them uh, in a moment, but that's an example of what the Last Prisoner Project calls the Prison to Prosperity Pipeline and our ambition and our goal, and we won't stop until we achieve it, is that every single released cannabis prisoner on this planet, if they want to work in the legal cannabis industry, they'll find a job there. Stephanie, hopeful signs for you. When Evelyn was fired from that hotel, I felt like I had been fired from that hotel. Um, I was so hopeful for her, and I wanted her to just get back to the life she had. And I felt like working at that hotel did that. But now I look at it as, no, you're moving past that. Um, and so now that she's in the position that she's in, um, there's hope. There's hope for all of us. And I hope to follow in her footsteps and in a way to, to turn this around for my father. Because... Um, when he died, unfortunately, he died with me being labeled a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. Then to get a year off from, from prison, I took the drug program, and now I'm labeled a drug addict. Um, so this drug, I want to turn it around for me because it's done nothing, but they've tried to push it so negatively. Mm-hmm. And I mean, when my attorney asked me, when did you start smoking marijuana? I said, 28. He said, 28? Who starts smoking weed at 28? <laughs> but I was like, okay. But um, when I was on pretrial and I had to test randomly and uh, every week and no problem. I can do that too. So um, just having this drug and in my life or this plant in my life, um, I want to turn it around for the better and show that it's, it's not something to be stigmatized. And so um, uh, you uh, and Evelyn and Natalie, who we haven't, Natalia, who we haven't met yet, um, but we probably will one day, um, are, have some pretty exciting news about turning this thing around a little bit. Um, uh, Evelyn, do you want to tell us about what's going on there? Yes, I'm so excited. It just like jumps out. Um, there's, uh, we've teamed up Last Prisoner Project with Her Highness NYC. Um, beautiful brand. Like I just, I am excited to even buy some of the merchandise. It's so beautiful. And we've teamed up and created, they have created a pre-roll that will feature me, Stephanie, and Natalia, um, my co-defendant, 
uh, indica, a sativa, and a hybrid. Um, and it'll launch in August, I believe. It'll launch in August, August. and the proceeds will benefit Last Prison Project and us. And so I'll be pushing for everyone to purchase this pre-roll. Um, and I'm just like super excited that there is like, we have our face. We're going to have our face on some weed. Like, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> like, if we're just going to be like, I'm so excited. Um, and yeah, and then I'm hoping by my birthday in March to launch my cannabis accessory line and just finding ways in this industry that does not violate us, but that we can call our own, make our own. And that is so much better than working in a hotel. <laughs> Well, I am so glad uh, that we uh, all found our way to each other and that things are working so well uh, uh, for you. Stephanie, any uh, thoughts on the brand? Any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Um, I'm just happy that there are people out there who want to support us mm -hmm. and want to better the whole industry. Um, so I really appreciate what they've done. I definitely appreciate what the Last Prisoner Project has done. Um, if nothing else, it it shows that people care. Mm -hmm. And because when you're in prison, it feels like no one cares because you just kind of go into this little bubble. So just seeing how much love that we've gotten, it makes it um, better for wanting to push ahead mm -hmm. instead of just stopping dead in your tracks and feeling like prison is the last of my life. No, prison kind of is the beginning of my second half of my life. Well, uh, thank you both for telling your stories, both the dark parts um, and, and walking us through that and reopening those chapters of your lives. And then these these light parts, um, and uh, I'd like you know all of our listeners, the whole international cannabis tribe, the hundreds of millions of us uh, around the world, to hang on to both parts of these stories, understand that darkness because it's still very much present. It's the reality for most of us in most places right now, and the only way it disappears is by us moving forward and carrying the light. And then there's the light, which we've just talked about. And, and is a beautiful thing to see. So thank you, Evelyn. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, you know, wherever cannabis people are, anywhere around the world, we're kind and gentle people. We find peaceful ways of moving through the world. We honor nature. We're not a threat to anybody. We know that when we've been oppressed, it's, it's not because we use the plant. It's because of who we are. It's because we're out of odds with some elite because of our race or our religion or our sexual orientation or the way that we look or believe in the world. We know that once cannabis is legalized, that there's all these great benefits that flow, that violent crime uh, goes down, that domestic violence goes down, that addiction and suicide go down. And yet this reign of terror has been unleashed on us. But my message here to all of you is that change is coming. There are now hundreds of millions of us all around the world. We're in contact with each other. We've peeled back prohibition in some places. We're going to keep on peeling it back until we've peeled it back every single place all around the world. And our memories are not short and our minds aren't dimmed by superstition or ignorance. And we will not rest and we will not stop until the last canvas prisoner comes home to their families and is given the resources they need to rebuild the lives that were stolen from them. Wherever you are, whatever your situation, know this, change is 